encourage you to take a copy of the scriptures and open to Mark chapter 5 as we continue our consideration through this gospel. We come today to verses 21 through 34 of uh, Mark chapter 5. <clears throat> the providence of God and his, um, particularly when it comes to his worship and study of his word is always amazing. About 20 plus years ago, I was in a series preaching through the gospel of Mark, and I had uh, actually finished the section that we want to consider today, and we had a, a brother from Wales coming the following week that was going to be preaching, and I did not tell him where I was preaching or what I was preaching, but I, I finished up this particular portion I want to look at today, and the brother from Wales stood up the following week and said, open your Bibles to Mark chapter 5, verse 35. And I thought, well, now that's consecutive expositional preaching by the providence of God because we just went right on. So the, the week after that, I just picked up in six and just kept on going. So uh, I, I think of that every time I come to this portion of Scripture. And then um, in our Bible study, Sunday school lesson this morning, uh, there was so much in that that ties to and relates to very closely uh, what I want to be mentioning today. I was just marveling again at God's providence as we, as we gather as his people to, to read in his, and study his word. You'll recall that Mark chapter 4 verse 35 through chapter 5 is a unit. That's the way we've been, that's the way we've been considering this portion of the word of God as a unit. In these verses, there are four miracles that witness and attest to the king of the kingdom of God. There is the miracle of the calming of the storm. And we see that the king rules and he reigns over the forces of nature. Last uh, Lord's Day, we looked at the exorcism of legion in the verses just prior to where we are today. We saw that this king of God's kingdom rules over the powers of darkness. And then we come to the miracle today. We want to consider the woman with the issue of blood, the healing of this woman. And we see that the king rules and reigns over sickness and disease. And then again, in the last part of this uh, chapter, where uh, Pastor John will be picking up, Lord willing, next week. It would be the resurrection of Jairus' daughter, and we see that the king rules and reigns even over death itself. Today we focus on the third miracle, and I will entitle it, entitle it an inconvenient miracle. And I ask you to look now to the word of God as we read Mark chapter 5, beginning with verse number 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, 
My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he, Christ, went with him, Jairus. And a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but grew worse. She had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up, and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus Perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he, Jesus, looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. May God bless his word and may his people say, Let's seek the face of God together for a moment. Holy Father, we do come into your presence today, we gather as Emmanuel Baptist Church. We come from a varied week. We know that there are those with us that are uh, in mourning and grief. We know that there are those among us that are tired physically, emotionally, spiritually have pressures upon them, whether it be pressures of the job or financial pressures or family pressures. Lord, we come in various ways, but we all come with the same common need. And that is, Lord, we need, we need fellowship and communion and to be fed by our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. So I pray that you would take that which seems sometimes so um, laughable to the world and yet is so powerful in the presence of the Holy Spirit. And that is, Lord, that your word would be read and would be expounded upon and through the presence of the Holy Spirit it would be Life and it would have meaning and power, restoration. It would bring um, encouragement. And at the same time, Lord, we know that your word is a sharp two-edged sword. And where there is encouragement, Lord, we also realize that there can be the very uh, cutting, as it were, of our very souls. But we pray that as 
a hungry person. We will find every bitter thing sweet and we would desire your word in all of its fullness. So Lord, feed us, we pray. Minister to your people and may Christ our Lord be exalted. And it's in his name I do pray. Amen. So we begin today by considering the immediate context, and that would be Mark 5, 21, uh, down through 34, 35, actually, would be the immediate uh, context of this passage. Jesus is returning from Decapolis. We've looked at that, where he sailed across the sea. In Galilee, he heals one man, gets in the boat now. He's come back into uh, Galilee and it would seem almost immediately upon landing, it, that's kind of the intent, it seems, as Mark records this for us, that Jesus is surrounded again by a crowd when he comes back to Galilee. Now, a crowd, <clears throat> crowds around Jesus at this point of his ministry are not at all unusual. If you'll notice in Mark, <clears throat> excuse me, Mark chapter 3, verse 9. We read, and he told his disciples to have a boat ready for him because of the crowd, lest they crush him. And you'll notice also in Mark 3, verse 20, then he went home and the crowd gathered again so that uh, they could not even eat because of the size of of the crowd that gathers where he is. Then again in verse 32 of the same chapter, and a crowd was sitting around him. So a crowd is not, around Jesus is not unusual at this point in his, in his ministry. But here in these verses that I've read in Mark 5, Mark will call attention five times in these verses. Five times in these verses he mentions a crowd. He mentions it in verse number 21, a great crowd gathered around him. He mentions it in verse 24, where a great crowd followed him and thronged him. Again, uh, in verse 27, uh, he had heard reports about Jesus she had and came up behind him in the crowd. And then in verse number uh, 30, um, Jesus perceiving himself that power had gone out from him and immediately he turned about in the crowd. And then again in verse 31, the apostles' response to Jesus' question is they're incredulous, and they say to him, why are you saying who touched me? You see the crowd of people. So obviously, as you read this section, there's a lot that Mark pulls our attention to the fact there's a crowd around Jesus. Um, This crowd impacts what happens in these verses that we're reading. Again, in verse 24, we're told that the crowd followed him and thronged him. Well, that's not a word to use every day, is it? Thronged. What does that mean? It means that he was pressed upon from every side by people. They were, this crowd was all around him. This crowd is thronging him. It's pressing upon him from every side. And maybe this is a little bit of Um, supposition on our part but you would imagine that this pressing crowd this thronging crowd would impede his progress as he's trying to as he's trying to move forward and it's this crowd 
that this woman will see as an opportune time that she can be anonymous. She can be just one face in a sea of faces. She can get lost in the crowd and she can come in in her mind and just touch his garment to be made well. So the crowd is here for a reason. It's, it's very much part of this miracle. From this crowd, <coughs> a man comes out. And I'll just mention this in as much as it, these two miracles overlap. I won't get into the, the miracle of the, of the raising of Jairus' daughter. But from this crowd it emerges a man, Jairus, <coughs> who is a leader in the synagogue. He's a man of, of some repute and some um, respect in the community. <clears throat> and he comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus with, a, with an immediate request. And it is, my little daughter is at the point of death. Come lay your hands on her so that she may be made well. And we can imagine how Jairus, Jairus is imploring Christ, come with me. He almost, as it were, taking Christ by the hand and would lead him, if he could, through the crowd. i got to go to my house. You need to come with me. In fact, his, uh, Jairus' persistence is emphasized in verse 33, where it says he implored him earnestly. <clears throat> That's, the word is para. You've heard of paraclete. The word is para, come alongside. And kaleo, which is, means to call. So he is, he's coming He's asking Christ to come along with him, come beside him. And then <clears throat> the, the uh, tense of the verb here, is, uh, earnestly, is, is, uh, it suggests that this isn't just one request, but he is asking Jesus repeatedly. So it doesn't take a vivid imagination when you read this passage. If you're a parent, a father, and you have a child that's sick unto the point of death, and here's the healer, what you would do. You would break through the crowd. You would grab him if possible. And you would implore him repeatedly, come with me, come with me, come with me. And you would drag him if you could to your home. And then we come to Mark 5.25. And here we have an inconvenient miracle. Jesus stops. He just stops. Again, as a father, I can only imagine the angst of Jairus at this point. Why are you stopping? My daughter is almost, she's at the doorstep of death. You Come with me. But Jesus stops, and he stops because he was touched. He wasn't touched on the hand or the face or the shoulder or even the foot. It wasn't physical contact. They touched his garment. Well, verse 27, we read that she had heard reports about Jesus. And she came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. But in verse 30, what she meant to be anonymous is discovered and becomes public. And she tells Christ everything. Now, Jesus was often interrupted. And, you know, different type personalities, type A, type B, whatever, but 
type A personalities, I don't know what, I'm not trying to put Jesus in a type here, but just, you don't like interruptions. You, you are goal-oriented. I have this to do, and I must get whatever this is to do done. And I don't like interruptions to interfere with me because I have these goals. Guys, that's why when you're driving down the highway, you hate to pull off the side of the road for your family and stop and wait because all those cars you've passed are now passing you. And you've got to get from point A to point B. Well, Christ was often interrupted. In Mark chapter 2, uh, there was the interruption. Pastor Tyler preached from this, but there's the interruption while he's preaching. He's in a house preaching, and some friends bring a man who's sick, and they can't get in, and they start taking the roof off. Now, I, you know, what, what in the world would we do if a helicopter hovered overhead and, you know, started letting someone down? I mean, it's just like, that's, that's quite an interruption. They're taking the roof off the house to get in. In Mark chapter 3, verse 20, his meals are interrupted. He can't even sit down at a table. I remember one of the uh, episodes of the Waltons years ago where they'd just gotten a phone, and they're all sitting down at the table, and the phone rings. And I can't remember the dad's name, but the dad's like, why is that phone? We're sitting down to eat. How dare they disturb me at my mealtime? Well, he, did, he was interrupted even when he sat down to eat. In fact, if you read through, you'll find he's, his prayers are interrupted, his sleep is interrupted, his solitude is interrupted, his grief is interrupted. In fact, somebody commenting on the Gospel of Mark said there are more than 35 interruptions recorded in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus, that he deals with. Over 35 in this short little book. That's a lot of interruptions. But you know, our Lord's response to interruptions was unlike a lot of people. He did not get annoyed. I <clears throat> looked for it at the house, and I realized it's probably here in the office, but there's a little book. Um, I think it's by Hummel. I believe the man's name is Hummel. Uh, it's called The Tyranny of the Urgent. And he talks about how Christ could say at the age of 33, I have completed the work my Father has given me to do. How can you say that? And, he, and it's a good small little book and if you've never read it I encourage you to read it because it has to do with, with life and living with a, with a thought towards serving God but anyhow uh, there's the tyranny of the urge that you got your plans <clears throat> I plan this afternoon shortly after worship's over to leave to go to Florida that's my plan but who knows what might happen between now and then and the tyranny of the urgent might press in, and I have to change my plans. Christ understood that. A lot of times, it, one thing is planned, but something happens, and you have to go in a different direction. He understood that life happens. Now, he, of course, is fully, truly, I should say, truly God and truly man. And he's about his father's business. But for us, life does happen and things come up. And our plans have to be altered. And I would also suggest that Christ used the providence of interruption. 
the providence of interruption. That interruptions, rather than becoming a problem with him, became an opportunity for ministry and teaching. And that's what he does here. So there's the providence of interruption. So in verses 34 and 35, Christ, he's, he's beginning earlier in the, in the section. He's going with Jairus, but he stops. There's an interruption. And then we have this startling transition in verses 34 and 35. Now this is at the end of the healing of the woman with the issue of blood. But he says to the woman these great words of encouragement. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And here's such an abrupt shift. While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, your daughter is dead. Why bother the teacher any further? I mention that because in Romans 12, verse 15, we're told to rejoice with those who rejoice, weep with those who weep. And the narration turns on a dime from the healing of the woman to the death of a child. That type of roller coaster can be very, very difficult to, to deal with. Some years ago, I was visiting and I was with a family in the hospital and I was there as their loved one departed this earth and went into eternity. And so there's much grief in this room. There's loss. I walked out of that room and I walked in the same hospital down the hall into the maternity ward to another family that was in the church where a baby had just been born. And there was happiness and rejoicing. I think of that, that's just a little sliver of, of almost Christ's daily ministry as you move from one, as it were, wonderful experience to just a, could be a life-crushing experience. And it just happens so frequently as you look at our Lord. Well, let's consider, that's something of an introduction of the text. Let's, let's consider the miracle now. In verses 25 through 28, we have the woman that's in this miracle described to us. There was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, who had suffered much under physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better but, grew, but rather grew worse She'd heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment, for she said, If I touch even his garments, I will be made well. Jeff Thomas, and that's the guy from Wales, by the way, I was referring to earlier that came in when I was preaching years ago on this uh, and picked up right where I had left off. But Jeff Thomas writes about this particular woman. He says, of her, of her condition, this would have involved great suffering for her physically, conjugally, personally, and socially. She could not engage in normal sexual relationship. She could bear no children. She was ritually unclean. She was ostracized from normal society and debarred from worship in synagogue and temple. And this had gone on for 12 long years. 
So this woman's situation is a sad situation. It's a very difficult and trying situation. In fact, by being where she was in that crowd, she is in direct disobedience to laws that would have prohibited her from being there. So she is in an act of disobedience. Now she's cut off from family. She's cut off from the, 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 the fellowship of worship. She's cut off from any uh, relationship. If she had a husband, she's cut off from, she's cut off. And then we see in verse 26, that's her condition. Then we see this woman's attempted cures. For 12 years, she had gone through all kinds of things. I read this, I think about a book that mine's about to fall apart. It's called the Foxfire Book. Have you ever read it, any of this? It's about the Appalachian Mountains. And, it, and it's got hog dressing, log cabin building, mock mountain crafts, planting by the sign, snake lore, hunting tales, faith healing, moonshining, and other fairs of plain living. And it's got, it covers, it started out as a high school project. A teacher had his students in the Appalachians to work on this, and so they wrote it. And, and the, the, the home cures in there, I always love the home cures. So if you have asthma, I'll tell you what you should do. You should, you should smoke strong tobacco until you choke. You'll probably choke to death. <laughs> if you have cramps in your feet, when you go to bed at night, you should turn your shoes upside down. If you have headaches, you should tie a flour sack around your head. If you have a, a fever, you should trim your fingernails and put them in a bag and tie the bag to an eel. Or if you have warts, you are to steal your neighbor's dish rag, rub the rag across your warts, warts and bury the rag in the woods. Those were the cures. Well, when we read this woman had this for 12 years and she went to the doctors and she'd suffered all kinds of things at the hands of the doctors and she paid for it. Some of the cures that she would have had, this is from the Talmud, which is a, a collection of Jewish law and tradition. And they have at least 12 cures they offer for this. I'm not going to give you all 12 cures, but you might appreciate these two. Set her in a place where two ways meet and let her hold a cup of wine in her right hand and let someone come in behind her and frighten her and say to her, arise from thy flux. So scare her. I reckon that's kind of like we used to do for sneezing. Scare somebody, they'll quit sneezing. Well, this is a cure. Another one was carry the ash of an ostrich egg in a certain cloth. And then the last one was you'd have to go to the barnyard and, and dig through the stuff in the barnyard till you found a barley corn which had been from the droppings of a white she-donkey. And you'd carry that with you. Now that's some of the cures that are in the Talmud this woman would have been subjected to. Now, we look at that and we go, that's nonsense. But, you know, some of the stuff they had did have some, some legitimacy. But this is what the woman had been putting up with. She's cut off. She's separated. And she spends all that she has for her living on such cures as this. And she's not better. She's worse. So she has a plan. Verses 27 and 28. She'd heard about Jesus and heard that people had been healed. So her plan is that I will sneak in because she's not supposed to be there. And I'm sure this was a, a, a moment of opportunity. She just seized it. Seizing. I'll go in. 
and I'll just touch the hem of his garment, and I'll be made well. Sproul, R.C. Sproul writing on this says, in one sense, what the woman did was commendable. Her action was certainly a demonstration of faith in the testimony she'd heard about Jesus. In another sense, however, it was not commendable at all. In her time, and not just at her time, but even to this day, there is widespread belief, let's call it, let's call it what it is, there's widespread superstition that touching something can lead to your being blessed or your healing or whatever your blessing you need may be. Now, what we're talking about is what's called, sometimes are called relics. And there are three different areas of relics that are, have been defined. There's one, something that belonged to Christ or where he died, the, the Shroud of Turin. It's supposed to have his face on it. Um, piece of the cross, piece of the manger, something. So that, 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 that would be uh, a first class. Second class is something that a saint owned, um, a shirt, hat, whatever. And you could touch and handle that, and it's supposed to have some sort of properties to it. And the third is an item that either touched one or two. So if you go, if you go to eBay, and I did this, because I just, I'm curious. So I went to eBay and I, I looked this up. And on eBay, you can buy a half ounce of Holy Shroud Relic Oil, which is a third class relic, that's the way it describes it. And that was supposed to come from the, from the Shroud of Turin. And that is supposed to have magical or spiritual powers. Well, listen, I remember hearing on the radio and even seeing it on TV. Men who are supposed to be preachers that will send you their handkerchief or some cloth they've prayed over or something. It's blessed and you just, you just take it. That's what we're talking about. And the Reformation relics were just scorned and frowned upon. In fact, let me quote John Calvin here for you. Instead of discerning Jesus Christ in his word, his sacraments, we call them ordinance, and his spiritual graces, the world has, according to its custom, amused itself with his clothes, his shirts and sheets, leaving thus the principle to follow the accessory. They've left the main thing to focus on something that's not even. Now in the Reformation, this will lead to the removal of icons and, and relics and even excessive decorations in a building. In fact, the, 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 this would be called a meeting house. It would be called a church. For years and years, where, where the saints gathered was called a meeting house. And you really find this when you get into the Puritans. But the meeting house would be kept very unadorned except for one thing, the pulpit. The pulpit would often be ornate, it would be raised, and the Bible would be laying on a, on a velvet pillow with either be red or green. And the reason for that was what you need to focus on, what your soul needs, is not visual, it is Christ in his word. And thus, even the architecture of the building would be defined by that. 
Well, this woman thought, if I can just touch his garment, I can be made well. Her plan both succeeded and it failed. She was made well, but she didn't do it anonymously. She was healed, but she was not healed because she touched his garment. That's not what Jesus says in the passage. Well, that brings us to the question then of who in verses 30 through 33 that Jesus perceives that power had gone out from him and he asked, who touched me? Now, I I really don't have much explanation on, on verse 30, perceiving that power had gone out from him. I, I, can, I can read you what the scripture says right there, and that's what I'll do. I'm going to leave it there. Jesus perceived power went out from him. And I know that this woman had planned a secret one-way contact, but what she planned became actually a two-way public contact. It wasn't just one way I'll touch him, but Christ knew and power went out from him. And then attention is called to the woman. And I also know that this woman's touch was not accidental, but it was purposeful. And it was by faith, even though that faith is very weak, immature, and wrought with problems. Yet it's a touch of faith. I know that from verse 34. Ferguson writing on this says, Jesus had drawn her out of the crowd, lest she hopelessly confuse her physical touching and what lay behind it. It was not because she had come near enough to touch him, but because she had trusted in him that she had been cured. And so Jesus is not going to leave this supposition on her part, this superstition on her part, that I got well by touching his garment. So he asked the question, who touched me? And the disciples respond to that is very unappreciative of the question. In fact, it's almost in disdain that they respond to Jesus by saying, what do you mean who touched you? Look at the crowd, Jesus. Of course you're touched. You're being thronged. You're being pressed on every side. Who knows who touched you? But verse 32, Jesus does not deter And in fact, the verb here is in the imperfect tense, which means that Jesus keeps on looking in the crowd. Who touched me? And he's looking and he's looking. His disciples respond, what kind of question is that? And he's still looking. Who did this? And of course, she's discovered and she confesses and she tells all. And then we get to verse 34 where we have the explanation and the encouragement. This woman's healing was a miracle. It was a suspension of natural law. It is a sovereign act of a sovereign God. By by that, this woman was healed. It's not superstition that heals this woman. Jesus explains it's not magic. But the conduit, the avenue, is her faith. 
Her faith was weak. It was confused. It's mingled with superstition. And yet, Christ recognized it as genuine faith. Now, I've got a rather long quote here, but I think it's easy to follow. I'm going back to my brother from Wales because I thought he did such a wonderful thing, a wonderful explanation here. Think of an explosion caused by a leakage of gas that utterly destroys a home. How big did the flame have to be to ignite the gas and set off such a mighty explosion? It must have been a huge flame like the ones pouring out of a lunar rocket at blastoff. No, just a tiny spark. That is all that's needed to set off the explosion. A little faith is faith. A weak faith can lay hold on a strong Christ. That was quoted this morning in our Bible study. Before we are sheep, we are lambs. Some so tender, they must be picked up in the mighty shepherd's arms and carried for a while. Think of two unbelieving families living next door to one another in Egypt the night of the first Passover. In the first house, they are trembling and doubting. All the time, they sacrifice the lamb, sprinkle the blood on the doorpost, cook the lamb and eat it with unleavened bread and bitter herbs dressed in their traveling clothes. That night, they can't sleep because of worry, wondering whether the firstborn will be alive in the morning. Every hour, the parents go into the bedroom to check whether the lad is still breathing. In the house next door, the family is so happy as they obey all the Passover instructions. They go to bed that night trusting in what the Lord has said and sleep, sure that God will keep his word and that their firstborn will be alive in the morning. At dawn, both families rejoice that their firstborn sons are running around the house as at every other breakfast time. The family with a weak faith were saved, just like the family with strong trust in the Lord because they did exactly what God told them to do. The certainty weren't the, they certainly excuse me, weren't enjoying their faith as the family next door, yet salvation came to their house too. So it is with Christians like Mr. Weak Faith and Mr. Timorous. They will be saved just as long as they keep their trust in Jesus Christ alone, though they are not certain whether they have done it or not. It is not the amount of our faith that saves us, but whether it is placed in Christ alone. You remember the occasion of Spurgeon's conversion? You've, you've read that? Some of you have. It's in January, and he's going to go to church, and then he going to go to his normal church and yet there's a, there's a snowstorm and he can't travel he's impeded his travel stopped and so he stops in at a primitive Methodist chapel and he gets there there's only just a handful of people there and the, the normal preacher's not there because he can't get there because of the snowstorm and so this guy's a tailor or a cobbler or something so he stands up to to do an impromptu sermon to the people that are there his text is Isaiah 45:22. Look unto me and be you saved all the ends of the earth. And I can almost imagine the brogue as I, as I read these words, and I won't try to do that, but you can just imagine the way this guy's speaking to them in his, in his very homespun way. He says, this is this look. He says, this is a very simple text. Indeed, it says, look. Now look and don't, 
Now looking, don't take a deal of pain. It ain't lifting your foot or your finger. It's just look. Well, a man needn't go to college to learn to look. You may be the biggest fool, and yet you can look. A man needn't be worth a thousand pounds a year to look. Anyone can look. A child can look. But the text says, look unto me. Ah, many of you are looking to yourselves. But it ain't no use looking there. You'll never find any comfort in yourselves. Jesus Christ says, look unto me. Look unto me, I'm sweating great drops of blood. Look unto me, I'm hanging on the cross. Look unto me, I'm dead and buried. Look unto me, I rise again. Look unto me, I ascend to heaven. Look unto me, I'm sitting at the Father's right hand. Oh, poor sinner, look unto me. Look unto me. And such was the sermon that God used to change the life of Charles Haddon Spurgeon. Such is the gospel. That is the gospel. You don't need to make a pilgrimage. You don't need to touch a holy relic. One just needs to come to Christ in faith. And that faith might not be a big, mighty, strong Abraham sort of faith as we studied this morning, Brother Ryan. It may be even that faith like Rahab. However, do not walk out of here thinking, okay, I've got a little faith. I'm okay. Do not think that a little faith is all right. Yes, that's all it takes to come to Christ. But small faith will lead to fear. And that's what Thomas was writing about it, uh, on that first Passover in Egypt, that family that feared. They had faith, but there was fear. Christ said, But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you? And then what does he say? That's a reprimand, by the way. He's reprimanding them for not trusting. And then he says to them, Oh, you of little faith. You're not trusting God. Thus you have fear. Small faith leads to doubt. And I've often had this conversation with people. I don't think that, that yes, a grown, mature, full faith can eradicate doubt. We don't always have full-grown, mature faith, do we? But Christ said in Matthew 14, but when he saw the wind, talking about uh, Peter, he was afraid and began to sink. He cried out, Lord, save me. Jesus immediately reached out his hand, took hold of him, saying to him, Oh, you of little faith, why did you doubt? That's little faith. And then lastly, little faith leads to guilt, a sense of guilt. That there is a lack of assurance and lack of confidence and trust in God. And I would cite you to Matthew chapter 16, verses 7 and 8, where Jesus again reprimands the disciples because they begin saying, I didn't bring the bread. Did he tell us to bring the bread? Should we have brought the bread? And Jesus looks at them and he says, oh, you of little faith. That was their problem. 
Why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Come to Christ in simple trusting faith, but then grow and mature and live and serve and follow in a maturing, growing faith. Now come to some words of application here. I think we've Try to look at the passage in its context and something about the text. Let's make a couple of closing comments. I've tried to emphasize this as we've looked at this woman. <clears throat> and it, again, it doesn't take a vivid imagination. This woman lived a lonely existence. She was lonely. She's cut off from the tabernacle of the temple. She's cut off from family. She's cut off from friends. She's cut off from society. She is a lonely person. Loneliness can often and does result from a lot of, lot of, ish, lot of matters. Sickness that can bring around isolation can cause a person to be lonely. Sin will cause people to isolate. They won't come to the house of God. They won't be in the fellowship because they know they have sin in their life, unrepented sin. And rather than dealing with the sin, they absent themselves from the very presence where the means of grace are for your healing. Fear, afraid of the world, can lead one to isolate and become lonely. Age, with the loss of family, the loss of friends, leads to loneliness and technology my word in our day and time people spend all their time with their face buried in a screen instead of communicating with each other that can lead to loneliness I've no doubt and I thought about this as I was thinking trying to prepare my mind and heart to stand here I have no doubt as I stand here today that I'm looking at some people who are lonely For various reasons. One of them I think about that probably really strikes our congregation is I, I think of something that Fran's father-in-law, Mac McKelvin, I said to him one time just in passing. His wife's name was Ludie, and she had died years before. And, and I said to Mac, we were at some church event, and I said to him, we were getting ready to leave, I said, you, you head home? And he looked at me and said, it hasn't been home since Ludie died. I'm just going to where I stay. Wow. And I think of our church and our church family. And a lot of you just go home to where you, you're not going home, you're just going to where you stay, where you reside. Those that are lonely, remember Proverbs 18.24. It reads, a man of many companions may come to ruin you can have all the friends in the world and that won't, can't help you stop some things. But there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. And that's our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. As a believer, the Spirit of God dwells within you and can give strength to deal with loneliness. Being a Christian does not negate Loneliness, it doesn't take away pain and hurt 
and sense of loneliness. But it can help you. God made us social creatures even from the beginning. We read it's not good that man should be alone. We're social creatures. God made us for fellowship. Believer to have fellowship with God and a believer to have fellowship with other believers. And God has provided structure. He's given structure for that fellowship. Psalm 68, 6 says, God settles the solitary in a home. This is what he gives, the home. So we think about it on so many different levels. There's marriage. There's family. Then there's church. There's church family. We call each other brother, sister, because that's who we are in Christ. Now we come to the responsibility on this, and the responsibility goes both ways. The responsibility is if you are like this woman, you have a responsibility to reach out, to take advantage of what God has provided you. Those are the means that he provides you to deal with, and to, to, to deal with your loneliness. But I've always felt like the stronger has the greater responsibility. In fact, the stronger brother should not wound a weaker brother. That's one of the principles of Scripture. And so if it's not your place in life right now where this might be your lot, then you do have a duty as a brother and sister in Christ to reach out to the one who you think might be lonely. Secondly, I want to mention season opportunities. Learn to be sympathetic to the providence of interruptions. I was blessed years ago in a church in Bullock County. I was young in the ministry. But I was blessed there to have an elder elder. He was a man that had been in the ministry for years and years and years. Knew everybody in the county. Had been a mail carrier for 50 years. He knew everybody. He was my elder elder. And he would always say to me, you've got to keep your antennas up. You've got to be aware of what's going on around you. And that's not just true for the pulpit, by the way. That's true for the pew as well. Don't be blinded. That's what he's saying to me. Don't be blinded by your life. Don't be blinded by your plans. Don't be blinded because you've got whatever it is you're going to do and life is going on around you. Don't be ignorant to that. Keep your antennas up. Seize the opportunities of interruption. You know better as well as I do that sometimes somebody says something or asks a question and it's not what's on the surface but it's what's driving that. How do you respond to a crabby waitress? By being crabby? Unfortunately, I can. But do I respond by thinking and maybe trying to engage her in conversation and go, having a bad day? And have an opportunity to witness about Christ. Story told years ago about a man on the bus that had unruly children 
and there was another person on the bus that was just going insane with it because the man wasn't doing anything to correct his children. They were running up and down. They were terrorizing everybody on the bus. And so finally this guy had enough. He said, man, take hold of your children, which sometimes ought to be said. <laughs> but in this case, the man said, I'm sorry. I, I was distracted. We just left the hospital. My wife just died, and I, I don't know what I'm doing. Who knows? View interruptions as providence. Providence of ministry. We talk about our responsibility to witness, and I don't know how to witness. Where am I going to? Well, just keep your antennas up. Look at Proverbs chapter 15 for just a moment. And I'm just about there, but look at Proverbs 15. Verses 1 through 4. How many people does it take to argue? Well, I can argue with myself sometimes. <laughs> Boy, <laughs> every time. <laughs> but a soft answer turns away wrath. Oh, there's sermons right there, are there not? A soft answer turns away wrath, but harsh words stir up anger. How do I respond? I'd respond to anger with anger. Or with a soft answer. The tongue of the wise commends knowledge, but the mouths of fools pour out folly. The eyes of the Lord are in every place, keeping watch on, e on the evil and the good. A gentle tongue is a tree of life, but perverseness in it breaks the spirit. Breaks the spirit. Think about Father's and uh, raising your children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord, but not in breaking their spirits. Be proactive. Don't wait to pray, but pray and wait. Don't brood and berate, but believe and bear. First Corinthians, I want to turn there because this is the last one I'll go to. But 1 Corinthians 13 is such a, it's basic Christianity, it's Christianity 101, but never lose Christianity 101 because it is so, so critical. 1 Corinthians 13, verses 4, 5, and 6. Love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. This is the stronger brother yielding to a younger. It's not insisting on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love does not jump to the assumption that this brother or this sister has it in for me, but it errs to grace and it exercises grace. Well, let's close, but last, last point, touched or thronged. Touched or thronged. 
Jesus was popular for a time, and he was thronged. He was pressed on by the crowds. But you know, in those crowds, only a few actually ever touched him, like this woman did. Jesus moved from being popular to being reviled. There's an old saying that there are three stages a preacher goes through. He's idolized, he's scrutinized, and he's scandalized. And you just repeat two and three. You never go back to one. You just keep going over in two and three, two and three. Idolized, scrutinized, scandalized. Jesus for a while was idolized by people. Oh, but when his teaching got hard, they went away and they walked no more with him. They scrutinized him. Then they scandalized him. Yes, he was popular. But when his teaching was hard, the persecutions arose, the next attraction came down the road, whatever it was, that crowd was fickle. They went from crying Hosanna on what we call Palm Sunday of his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. They go from crying Hosanna to crucify him. That shows you how they move. question for you and me is this. Will we go away too? Will you go away? When things aren't just exactly smooth, will you go away too? Don't be cavalier. Don't be cavalier with your faith. I have a dear brother, many of you know him, Steve Mark. And Steve said, you know, a long time ago, he's a couple years older than me, he said a long time ago, it's not that I don't want to do great things for God. That's, that's fine. But I want to finish well. I want to be faithful. I'm going to tell you that is hard. Finish well. Come in simple faith. Grow in your faith. Set your eyes above. And finish well. Let's pray together. Father, for your word, we're grateful for this congregation, for their attentiveness. We thank you, Lord. I pray that the word that we have heard, read, would be planted deep in our souls so that much fruit would grow from your word. Forgive us of our sins. Lord, help us to learn that providence sometimes is frowning, it's dark, it's even interruptive. Changes our plans, changes what I want. But Lord, help us to look at these providential interruptions as opportunities. And help us, Father, to love each other deeply. And to love our Lord and Savior even more. It's in his holy name we pray. Amen. Turn in our hymn books to hymn 